All right, let's open uh, our Bibles up to Matthew chapter 14. Uh, we don't have all our tech equipment up, but if you have the Version Bible app and you hit that more function down in the bottom right-hand corner and then the events notice, you should be able to geolocate onto today's message notes. You can have all of the scriptures to follow along with today's message. And of course, you can follow along on the paper notes as well. We're going to read what might be to many of you a rather familiar story. It is familiar to a lot of people who've read through the Gospels. They're amazed by the impact of this story. But we're going to be looking at it through the eyes of the series that we have been focusing on, talking about the invitations that God gives to each and every one of us. We're trying to fight the unbelief that is, seems to be native to our hearts, that God is not eager for us to come to him, and that if he does want us to come to him, that we have to sort of clean ourselves up, fix ourselves before we come to God, and nothing could be further from the truth. So we'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22, we'll read all the way down to verse 33. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. When we think about the invitations of Christ to come to him, we can think of it in four typical acts that happen in our lives. And we see them in this particular passage. Very often, we will only come to Christ after first he has sent us into a storm or a difficulty, a time of challenge in our lives. So what we're going to see in this passage is that, in fact, that's not an accident. It's not something outside of God's control. But in fact, Jesus gives the command, go into the storm, go into the places of difficulty. 
And we're going to see how that command comes with this implicit second command. And that is, wait for me to show up. Wait for me as God to show up in your life. And then we'll see how that always leads us to an invitation to come to Jesus in the midst of that reality that we live and are facing. And so then we'll see how that kind of gets wrapped up in this idea that we are to come in faith. We're to come trusting in his saving grace. So that'll be how we'll kind of look at this story. Uh, these four key commands, go into the storm, wait on God to show up, come to Jesus and trust in his saving grace. So let's go right into it. Let's talk about what does it mean to go into the storm. Look right there in verse 22, right there at the very beginning. Uh, the setting for this is Jesus has just done what may be his widest known miracle. He has fed 5,000 men and their families. This is 10 to 25,000 people have just been fed from a handful of bread and a couple of fish. Jesus has just done something huge. And the crowds have seen it and there's leftovers. There's leftovers, right? Today's Super Bowl Sunday. Some of us are going to have little Super Bowl parties. Uh, and, and guess what? There's always leftovers, right? There's, there's food that we don't eat. Well, Jesus has done this. And then the scripture says, immediately after this, he tells his disciples, get in the boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. Why? What's happening? Go before me to the other side. Uh, and he stays and dismisses the crowds. Can you imagine how the disciples probably felt? There was some confusion. Jesus, you've just done this amazing thing. You've just fed all these people. It's time, right? Especially in the light of the context of the Gospel of Matthew, which is focused on the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. Surely his disciples thought, this is the moment where Jesus is going to become king. Look what he just did. And Jesus says, go away. Uh, I'll meet you guys on the other side of the lake. I'm sure there was some arguments, some doubt. Do you know that Jesus has reasons for sending us into the storms of life? And he doesn't always, or rarely, in fact, explain himself. Jesus is sending his disciples across the lake. What he knows and what they don't know is that he's going to send them into a, 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 a storm. He's sending them literally into a storm that's going to batter their little boat and they're not going to make it across the lake. Now, why would he do that? Why would God send us into difficult situations in life? Things that frustrate us, things that make us feel alone. Uh, well, sometimes, just like in this story, there might be immediate or what you might call proximate reasons. Things that are immediately uh, about just the situation. I think that Jesus was probably trying to protect his disciples. The Gospel of John says that the, that the crowd that Jesus had just fed turned into a mob and they were going to force him to become king. Can you imagine how Peter would react if somebody attacked his master? We've seen what happens there, right? 
Just keep reading the Gospels and you'll see Peter turn violent. James and John got mad and wanted to call down thunder from heaven or lightning from heaven, uh, I I should say, uh, whenever somebody insulted Jesus. And Jesus knows a mob is forming, so he's probably protecting his disciples by saying, hey guys, get in the boat. This is not going to be good. I can handle it. You guys can't, right? Sometimes there are immediate or proximate reasons. Jesus is going to go up on the mountain and spend the night in prayer. He needs to go be with his father and he needs to be alone. But guess what? We only see those things with sort of a a long distance zoomed out perspective. The disciples didn't even see the more immediate reasons. They didn't understand what was going on. God is not in the business of explaining his reasons. In fact, a lot of times his reasons are veiled. But there's always a purpose when he sends us into the storms and difficulties of life. And he's in the business of teaching us something or revealing himself to us in some new way. I want to ask you if your fundamental belief about God is this, that he knows and reigns over every season and situation in your life. Do you believe that? Now, I know it's easy to believe, especially when things are going well or just not bad. But as soon as we have a flat tire or we get a bad medical diagnosis more seriously or somebody we care for suffers or dies, it begins to be easy to not believe that God is in control, right? It becomes easy to think that God doesn't know what's going on. But scripture is full of the evidence that God has known every moment of the entire creation from its beginning to its end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The psalmist writes this, In the book of God was written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. Can you imagine recognizing that reality. I don't know what's going to happen in five minutes, let alone with any degree of certainty what's going to happen in five days or 50 days or five years. But Jesus does. He knows all my days. They're all before him. There's a wonderful song by the band City of Light that that says, all my ways are known to you. Hallelujah. I don't have to know what's in front of me. There's a God who does. Right? Uh, and, and we can therefore, because we know God's character, we know not only that he is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, we know that he is always full of grace and mercy. Therefore, all the storms of life are always for our good. When Jesus sends the disciples into this difficult situation, it is not for their harm, but it is for their good. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says that we can know, that means we can have with absolute certainty, that those who love God, for them all things work together for good because they are called according to his purpose. So we can have this confidence. But in the moment when we're called to obey, 
when we're tempted to argue with Jesus, when he's calling us to be faithful in a difficult situation, we need to remember this, that obedience to Jesus often means entering into difficulties that require struggle and long-term endurance. Now, here's something we know. Jesus fed the disciples who would be before, or fed the crowd uh, before sundown. He sent the disciples across the lake before sundown. As fishermen, they would not have likely crossed the lake if it was in the middle of the night. It doesn't make sense based on the rest of the timing. So Jesus sends them before sundown, before the first watch of the night. And Jesus is sending the disciples into a difficult situation. And what we're going to see, if you keep reading in verse 24, is that Jesus prays all night up on the mountain, but the boat containing the disciples is now a long way from land, but it's not across the lake. In fact, it's pretty much right smack in the middle of the Lake of Galilee. It's about three miles. They haven't made a lot of progress in what is likely to be nine hours. It's, the scripture says it's because the boat has been beaten by the waves. In another passage, it says the wind was against them. They were being battered. They were in the midst of a difficult situation. How do you think the disciples felt? Would you be shocked if they felt alone or abandoned? Hey, wait, Jesus told us to go and he's sent us out onto the lake. Maybe even more especially so because if you flip in your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had already been with them in another storm. In that same lake. The difference was that when he sent them, he said, hey, let's go across the lake. He's out there in the middle of the lake. A storm came up. The water was pouring in and, and everything else. Guess what happened? The difference was Jesus was there with them. Now, he doesn't appear to be anywhere around. Have you ever entered into a time where you felt like God... You seem so far away. Have you left me here all alone? I've been through storms in life before, but you seem so close, and now you seem so, so far away. Why did you send me so far away from you? And furthermore, it's not just that we might be fearful or lonely, we can be frustrated. We could feel like our efforts aren't counting for much. In fact, our efforts to obey him may appear fruitless while leading us to fear and frustration. John, the disciple, records that in the nine hours that they had been rowing, they had only gone three or four miles, 25 or 30 stadia. Huh. Now, this is not an inexperienced crew. Keep in mind, there are at least four professional fishermen on that boat. I don't imagine Matthew was much good. He was probably sitting in the bow commenting as, as technocrats do, you know, saying, I don't know, Peter, maybe you're not rowing right. You know, Peter's like, I grew up on the water, right? <laughs> but in any case, there's a frustrated group of people. Have you ever tried to do one thing for nine hours? And not get what you're trying to do accomplished? Isn't that frustrating? 
Does God ever send us into places where we feel alone, frustrated, at the end of our abilities, and where things appear fruitless? I have good news for you. The answer is, yes, He does. Now why? Why? Why would He do that? At least one reason is because he's wanting us to learn how to wait for him to show up. Wait for him to be the answer. Uh, Have you ever thought about this, that Jesus is never not on time? Some of us are better at being on time than others of us. Some of us like to arrive early. It makes us feel uh, safe and secure. Other people think, well, you know, if I'm there and I'm within the 15 minutes or 20 minutes of the time I told you, you're just lucky I showed up. Right? But Jesus is always on time. He never shows up at the wrong time because it is always his purpose that time serves and the situations serve. So even when it doesn't feel like it, Jesus is always on time. In this case, Jesus shows up, read verse 25. Jesus shows up in the fourth watch of the night. The Roman military broke the night up into three watches. So there was from 6 to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, 3 to 6. Sundown was right around 6, so you had this watch system throughout the night. Jesus doesn't show up, so if the disciples left the shore before 6, which they almost certainly did, and he doesn't show up till the fourth watch of night, Guess what? It's after three. At least nine hours have passed. I am sure the disciples don't feel like Jesus is showing up on time. (laughs) He's let them struggle for hours. And then he comes to them walking on the sea. Jesus, the fully God, and yet also fully man, No demigod of Greek mythology is this. This is full humanity walking on the water because he is imbued with full divinity, all power. In fact, he created not only the water, the molecules, everything about it. He determines the order of physics. He shows up walking on the water. Now, just think about it this way. If that were to happen to you, how would you react? <laughs> uh, you're frustrated. You're angry. You're tired. Peter's been uh, frustrated not only with the situation, but the fact that Matthew keeps making a running commentary on his fishing ability. There are critics abounding, I'm sure. Jesus shows up. What's the reaction? Well, if he's walking on water, wouldn't you be scared? Wouldn't you be confused? I thought he was going to meet us on the other side. Didn't know how he was going to get there. Thought he knew a camel driver, you know, was going to get me camel Uber from one side of the lake to the other. I don't know. But Jesus shows up walking on the water at the right time to fulfill his purposes. The disciples, verse 26, Jesus is walking on the sea. They are terrified. And they cry out. Uh, in your English Bibles, it'll say, it is a ghost. No, it's a phantasma. A ethereal spirit has just shown up, and they cry out in fear. 
Why am I telling you this? Because when God shows up in the midst of our most frustrating, alone, heartache-filled situations, the often human and, and ordinary believer's response is not delight, but fear and shock. God showed up. And he showed up in a way that wasn't the way that seemed normal. Jesus didn't show up with a fishing fleet of friends and tow ropes to tow them out of their situation. He just shows up walking on the water. And then he speaks. He speaks into our fears and our frustrations. He wants to remind us of some things. So look at the passage and you'll see some of the things it says. Verse 27. Immediately, Jesus speaks to them. And this is what he says. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, that's the way your English Bibles will consistently translate that last line. But I'm going to tell you right away that you're going to miss one of the key things he's saying because of the way your English Bible's translated. They're not doing something wrong. They're just trying to translate a difficult phrase. The way the Greek is written reads like this. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. Take heart, ego, me. You're like, I, I don't know what that means. It means I am. Jesus shows up and he says, he doesn't, it, 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 it's, you know, the English thing of it is I can sort of convey it, but it's more important theologically because one of the things Jesus is going to try and remind them is that he is God. And so when he says, take heart, I am, do not be afraid, he is speaking into the disciples' theological knowledge as Jewish people who they would have remembered there was a moment when God showed up unexpectedly in a burning bush and said to Moses the shepherd, I am who I am. That's my name. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What is called the divine tetragrammaton. The name of God. Yahweh. I am who I am. So when Jesus shows up, he says, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. He is saying, take heart. God is here. Take heart. I am. I, I created everything. All of it. It's mine. You're mine. Take heart. Don't be afraid. Why? Why would you be afraid if God has said to you, I am here with you. I am present with you. Brothers and sisters, when God shows up in the difficult moments of life, he wants to remind us that he is a present God. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, the peoples that were opposed to God's people. For it is the Lord, the I am, your God, who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. The disciples felt like they were alone and they were never alone. Jesus wasn't in the boat with them physically, but he had never abandoned them. He wants them to remember that he is Lord over every situation and he loves them. 
I don't know what you came to church with this morning. I know some of your lives better than others, but I would just say to you, there's not a single situation that Jesus, that you're facing that Jesus is not Lord over and with you in that situation and he loves you. I love Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. It reads like this. But now, thus says the Lord, the I am, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So when Jesus says, take heart, I am, that's what he wants them to be thinking about. He wants them thinking about Deuteronomy 31.6 and Isaiah 43 and dozens of other places when the I am shows up. Don't be afraid. So, in life's difficulties, while obeying God, wait for him to show up. So often, brothers and sisters, we stop looking around us for God to show up. We look at the difficulties, the complexities of our situation, like the disciples in the boat who are going, my hands are sore, these oars are useless, who didn't pick the right sail, what on earth are we doing? Are we carrying too much weight? Why are you carrying so much food with you, Judas? You know, <laughs> We begin to grumble, complain, get frustrated with one another. We look at all of these situational realities. And you know what we stop doing? We stop waiting for God to show up. And that's the biggest mistake we can make. So in what difficult situation that you are facing this week, this month, this year... Are you waiting for God to show up in? You know, when God takes us to the end of ourselves and the end of our ability, we come to the place where we realize if he doesn't show up, we're toast. You know... Uh, Ten and a half years ago or so, my wife and I accepted the call to come and pastor this church. And I remember we drove that first night, I think it was back to our hotel. And uh, Tracy said, well, here's the good news. If God doesn't show up, there's nothing that's going to save this church. That's good news. Wouldn't it be terrible if we thought we could save ourselves? In life's difficulties, while obeying, we wait for God over and over again. I encourage you, on your, your version notes, your written notes, there's a whole bunch of passages here 
that we listed there in that section, second section under point number four. I'm just going to read one of them. Go home, read those passages. You'll he- read things like this. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. God is good for the people who wait for him to show up, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait for God to show up and save you. Not passively, actively obeying him, but waiting for God to come through. Now here's the third part of this. In all of this, we're to come to Jesus, right? So they're in the storm. Jesus shows up walking. He says, take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. What's your response? Here's Peter's response. Matthew 14, 28. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. Read that very carefully. Ask yourself, what's Peter's desire? Is it to be cool? Show up? I I want to walk on water. He doesn't say, hey, God, if that's you, I want to walk on water too. That's not what he says. He says, I want to be with you. And, And if that means I have to leave the relative safety of the boat to go out onto the storm, I don't care. I want to be with you. Peter literally leaps from the frying pan into the fire. Because he would rather be with Jesus outside of the boat than to be safe inside the boat. Isn't that crazy? His longing is to be with Christ. John records in John chapter 21, another moment, when Jesus is resurrected and Peter sees that Jesus is on the shore... Peter literally jumps off the boat and just swims in because he would rather be with Jesus than with anybody else. How about you? Would you rather be with Jesus or would you rather be safe? Would you rather be with Jesus or hang out with the guys in the boat who are trying to fix their own problem? Brothers and sisters, do we long to be with Jesus and nothing less than Jesus? The psalmist says this as a prayer. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, this requires to come to Jesus means that he has to go through or on the storm, right? Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Because he's a smart enough fisherman to figure out that swimming to Jesus is not going to work in this weather. Have you ever asked God, in the middle of your difficulties, the heartache, the heartbreak, and say, God, I want to come to you on the storm. Theologians will tell us over and over again that water in Hebrew thinking is always about chaos and disorder and difficulty. 
So Peter says here, I want to come to you on this situation. I want to come to you and meet you as you are standing on top of the storm. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, do we listen well for the voice of God? How many of us in the storms and difficulties of life are not waiting for his commands or even wanting to be with him? Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me. Uh, years ago, I read a wonderful book by Pastor John Ortberg. If you want to want a walker, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. It's a long title. It's a great book. I commend it to you. It's a great book. But it's so true, right? And he points out in that book that Peter uses a very specific word and he says, I need you to give me the order. How many of us come to God and say, whatever it takes for me to come be with you in this situation, give me that order, I will do it. I will do it. Command me to come to you. And that's where the invitation is, right? Jesus says, come. And with the command to come, comes the power to do it. In that moment, God himself gives the authority to Peter the disciple to walk on what? Wow. That's amazing. That's God at work. Now, if he gives you the command, you know what you got to do, right? You got to come. You got to do what he's saying. It requires effort. I can't imagine the effort it took to step out of a boat that was probably at least four and a half feet deep, potentially as much as six feet deep. Peter has to find that right moment and leap over the edge of the boat and put his feet down on the water and walk. Can I ask you, do you think you're missing out on some miraculous moments in your life? Because even when God is inviting you to come to him in the midst of the trials and the storms, you don't want to obey. You don't want to do what he's telling you to do. You know what will save us? Trusting in his grace. Trusting in his grace that will save us. So you step out and you're going to walk on water. You know what you need to do? You need to fix your eyes on Jesus. You got to fix your eyes on Jesus. He's got to be the object of your faith, right? But verse 30 introduces the next portion of this story. It says that when Peter sees the wind, he becomes afraid. What happens? He's walking on the water to Jesus. The only issue emerges when he gets his eyes off Jesus and on to the wind and on to the waves. The issue comes when he stops looking at Jesus. And that happens to all of us. We are, according to the author of Hebrews, we're to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the one who's going to bring our faith all the way home. And the same way that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus came to live the perfect life we could not have lived and die the atoning death, his eyes were not just fixed at Calvary, but beyond Calvary to the glory of the Father, God. And it took him through the cross where his blood was shed to wash you and me clean of our sins, to bear our sins as our substitute for the joy of his Father's glory and the eternal joy of bringing many brothers and sisters to Christ. Jesus endures that. In that same way, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. We're to fix our eyes on him and cast off the sins and the weights of this world that seem to cling to us. For a moment, Peter was walking on water. And then he looked at the waves. Now, folks, it's easy to pick on Peter. Can I point out that there's only two human beings that have ever walked on water? One's named Jesus, the other one's Peter. (laughs) So let's not be too hard on our brother Peter here, right? But what happens when you find your faith failing? When you get distracted? When you get your eyes on the waves and the wind? You cry out to him. Peter does the right thing. When he sees the wind, he becomes afraid and he begins to sink. So what does he do? He cries out, and this is so important. Listen to what he says. He doesn't say, Lord, help me fix myself. God, uh, Jesus, would you have them row the boat over here? Throw me a line. Whatever the first century equivalent of a life preserver is. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? Lord, save me. Brothers and sisters, we need to be looking for the salvation of Jesus in the ordinary realities of life. God, save me, deliver me, redeem me, change this situation. You know why we don't? Why don't we cry out to Jesus? So often, yes, 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 it's unbelief. Yes, Ken. It's our unbelief. The same unbelief that took root in the Garden of Eden. When Satan said, has God really said, and you can be like God, and you will not die. That unbelief is the root of all our broken relationships with God. Uh, The author of Hebrews is going to say, without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Our unbelief is the very root of our broken relationship with God. Tim Keller puts it this way. Under every behavioral sin is an idol, and underneath every idol is an unbelief in the good news, the gospel of God. You want to know why you act the way you do, why you sin habitually in certain ways? Look for your idols and then look for the unbeliefs that are underneath that. Because our unbelief drives all our sin. Scripture says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now here's good news. God delights in saving unbelievers. People full of unbelief. Even and especially when we're struggling to believe. 
There's a father who comes to Jesus with his son who's sick and he says, if you can do anything, please heal him. Jesus says, if I can, all things are possible for those who believe. The father's prayer is such a good model for us. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that where most of us find ourselves? We believe And yet we see still within us on this side of eternity all our unbelief. We know it drives us more. So what do we do? We grow. We realize that in the midst of this storm and this trial and this difficulty that Jesus is far more interested in helping us become who he wants us to be than in what we can accomplish for him. He wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to mature, go deeper, strengthen our faith. So what does Peter what happens when Peter cries out, "Lord, save me?" Jesus immediately reaches out his hand, grabs a hold of him, and he says to him, "Sometimes I think we read this with way too much indignation in there. I I I want you to hear the tone. I truly believe the tone was something like this, "Oh little child, your faith is so small." Why did you doubt me? You were walking on water. Well, isn't it good news that he wants us to go deeper? Brothers and sisters, when we realize that these storms in life are invitations to come to God and be changed by him and grow deeper, we will no longer be shocked by God's amazing works. The disciples go through all of this, by the way. Peter gets back in the boat. And the scripture and Mark, the gospel of Mark, it says that they get to the other side of this uh, storm. They immediately, in fact, are there, by the way. They immediately get to the other side of the lake, the place they couldn't get to by rowing all night. They end up there. And, and they, they, they come to this. The wind ceases, Right? And what happens? They're astonished at the fact that God is at work in the midst of it. Because their hearts are hardened. May God save us from hardened hearts. I'm asking you today, in your life and in this church, to believe God for the impossible. Hear me clearly. I'm asking you today in your life and in this church to believe God for the impossible. Jesus said to his disciples, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Oh, we are not talking about Learjet's, Mercedes, advanced bank accounts, and getting yet another vacation house here, are we? We're talking about the advent of the kingdom of God in our lives and through our lives and into our community and into this world. (laughs) And when God shows up, when he is at work, We need to rest in his provision. The disciples get into the boat. The wind ceases. 
And they are immediately at the shore that they had been trying to get to all night long. What do you do? Start rowing back the other direction saying, no, Jesus, I want to do it on my own. Or do you just go, I'm so glad I was tired of rowing. (laughs) No, what we do, brothers and sisters, is we rest and we worship. When God shows up, the right response, the only proper response to the advent of God in our lives is worship. And we realize it was all about his glory in the first place. We worship him as the son of God. And here in this moment, it's not the feeding of the 5,000, but it's this moment when they couldn't fix the situation themselves when the disciples get to the other end of the lake, that Matthew records this moment. Those in the boat worshipped him, and they say, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, do you want the world to see Jesus that way? Let's pray. Let's pray over the situations of our lives, the difficulties and challenges. Let's ask God to show up in those ways in our lives right now. Give us the faith to believe that he is at work. Let's wait for him, long for him to show up in such a way that he is revealed. Father God, that's exactly what we're asking for. We're asking you to show up in ways that are bigger than we could have asked for or imagined. We're asking for you to do the impossible. Some of us feel like we have been waiting and rowing and working through the difficult situations of our life, not just for a few hours, but not even just for a few days or a few weeks or a few months, but some of us feel like we've been waiting for years. There's there's spouses, there's children that don't yet know you and we've come to believe it'll never happen just this morning I heard of of missionaries who don't believe an unreached people group can be reached with the gospel because they've been laboring all night maybe we've stopped believing you're going to change something inward and broken inside us Maybe we've stopped believing that you're the God who can come through in some outward situation in our life, some great need. And so we're trying to fix it ourselves. God, we confess to you right now our unbelief, our fear, our frustration, and our aloneness. And we cry out to you, save us, deliver us. Be at work in us. Imbue us with the faith that perseveres. Grant us the ability to wait on you and to look with anticipation for you to show up and be at work and do things bigger than we could ask or imagine. We cry out to you. When that moment comes where we need to walk on the water, show us when that moment is, what we need to do, and help us to fix our eyes on you. And we will glorify you. Do this work in and through us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.